0: You are listening to Within Tolerance, a podcast for machinists, by machinists. I'm your host, Dylan Jackson of Protean Machining, and this week I'm happy to welcome Garrett Wade.
1: Welcome, Garrett. Hey, how you doing? Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, we got to, you know, we, we chatted over Instagram and stuff, but we really got to meet the DSI event. and So I'm really pumped to have you on the show after hearing a little more of your backstory. But first, for anybody who doesn't know who you are and what you do, give us the details.
1: My name's Garrett Wade. I work for a small company in Central Florida called JG Parts Co. We manufacture mostly automotive parts, but dabble in a bit of job shop work as well.
0: Awesome. Well, then let's get into your backstory because when we were talking at the event, it was very interesting to kind of hear how it wove in and out of manufacturing. And, you know, you kind of went away from technical things for a while and then ended up back in technical things so yeah let's get into it how'd you get into manufacturing
1: yeah so as a small kid uh my parents worked for a company that was in the early days of the transition from mls listings being paper into digital so they had these computers and servers that people would dial into and you could see the realty listings and as a result Computers were plentiful around the house. So from a very early age, I had a computer in my room, playing on the computer. As internet started to become more mainstream, we had internet. Um, And so that was a pretty big thing growing up outside of, you know, going outside and skating, what everybody does, playing on the computer. As I got into middle school stuff, the not-so-legitimate forms of acquiring software started to become more prevalent. Slightly before the Napster or Limewire days, there was FTPs and stuff. And in those days, I just started downloading everything I could get my hands on. Um, it was interesting to learn all these larger software suites, or at least dabble in them. And at the time I had asked my dad if there was anything that he was interested in. Like I now had access to all this stuff. And funny enough he was interested in program called Photoshop we had family photos that had uh, distress marks or discoloration from the printed film stuff and he wanted to go through and try to restore those um so at the time i downloaded that and started tinkering with it and playing with it and got some pretty early exposure to that um going on into high school 9 11 happened real crazy chaos and I had my parents pick me up from school. And on that day, on the way home from school, went and got my first job at a pizza place. Um, so it's very easy to remember what day I started working from. So I started working there and getting some money, was getting into cars. That first job, same thing, heavily into computer stuff, built a computer. We got really deep into modifying, overclocking, water cooling. We went to Walmart and bought a used, not a used, a, a small refrigerator and put the water cooling radiator inside a little mini fridge and we're outside in the middle of the winter just trying to get it every last <laughs> ounce we could out Sounds of these. like the
0: plot of a lightest Tech Tips video.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is early 2000s at the time. Um, so anyway, when I got my first car, it was a mid-90s Honda Civic. It's the same kind of thing. Just go on the forms and let's tinker with it. And once the car stuff started, everything really started to snowball. In that before getting the car had no mechanical anything, um, me and a neighborhood friend, buddy, Randy, he had got another car, another Honda. Also at the same time, neither one of us had ever done even an oil change, uh, never touched anything. And then, you know, we did one oil change each on our car, then he had bought a motor and we decided we were going to motor swap that car. And so he's. That's we, uh, an escalation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so we ended up with his car at the drag strip one night. He wanted to run it to see what it would do on the factory motor. He made two passes. It went basically the same time. We said, okay, that's what it does. Drove home and had the motor out while it was still hot. And then before the same come up, the sun came up the next morning. We had the new motor in and it was running and everything was good. And that was the start of just cars. We just full steam ahead on that. Um, Me and all my friends at the time were just car stuff. We got heavy into road racing. Um, we were running out track days, tracks, going out and doing events. I put a little four point cage in the car and was having fun with that. At the time I was delivering pizzas and struggling to get pizzas in between the roll bars, so then deliver them (laughs) to people's houses. It didn't make any sense, but a lot of fun. At the same time. What we were doing with the car stuff was interesting, and I wanted to document it. Forms were pretty big. Uh, Decided to buy a digital camera. At the time, that's when point-and-shoot digital cameras were first getting big. Film stuff was still pretty much dominant in professional space. But point-and-shoot digital cameras are coming around. And what was nice about that is there wasn't that wait for the development. Hurry up get on the computer, and I had a bit of proficiency in Photoshop at this point. So we could touch up a little things or do... I mean, nothing crazy, but effectively what's like an Instagram filter or something like that now and make it look unique. So I started playing with that. Uh, briefly went to college, realized that definitely wasn't for me. The, the pace which you learn stuff was just a little too slow. Uh, I just couldn't get behind it. So the car stuff continued on for a while. I was going to car meets, got out of that Honda, got into a, a Nissan, had room for bigger tires you know we could get a lot more traction put a lot more power to the ground have some fun met a ton of people out there that took over my entire life and i ended up working in the automotive industry then we i transferred to parts sales and aftermarket performance i also worked as a general mechanic for a while got some of my asc certifications and just was going down that path eventually got completely burned out in that just it was nothing but cars day and night my back was hurting i was in my mid-20s and i'm like this is ridiculous like oh geez uh, yeah i I can only imagine so uh completely got out of that for a little while and got an office job at ticketmaster of all places so sitting up you know five or six stories up in an office building overlooking downtown and just office job Worked there for about a year and really wanted to get back into car stuff. Um, Was also anxious to get deeper into photography. So at the time I bought a Rebel. So it was an early DSLR digital camera. Could change the lenses now. More of a slightly professional, you know, hobby grade. Um, But more than a point shoot. Uh, As soon as I got that, took off. Here's a new thing. Here's something I can learn about. Here's something I can deep dive on the internet about and just got really deep into photography stuff. The photo stuff then turned into, you know, this guy's got a camera, shoot pictures of this, let's shoot pictures of that I've got this. So I started shooting a lot of people, it turned into shooting a handful of weddings. Um, I ended up getting into photo studio with a couple buddies. And so we had a studio space and I started shooting product shots for people, started shooting clothing company ads, clothing company product shots, et cetera. We just shot everything we could for a long time. A couple of years of doing that, that transformed into a full-time job and realized, yep, let's get back into car stuff again started reaching out to my old car buddies, like, Hey, what do you got going on right now? What's this? What's that? Let's go shoot those started shooting a handful of them. I had gotten deep into off camera lighting, like studio lighting with shooting people stuff. And bringing that over to cars, adds a whole new element, it makes the photo look a a lot nicer than it does in real life, you can accent things that aren't there. Uh, So after shooting just a couple of friends cars with that, I had a friend reach out who had a family member who worked at the local Ferrari dealership, and said, "Hey, you have any interest? We could pull some cars out after, after hours, and we could shoot those." And was like, "That sounds cool. You know that that's a bit different than the Japanese cars that we've been playing with. Let's go do that." We pulled a couple Ferraris out that night, shot a couple pictures with some photos, made the background look like it wasn't in the parking lot of a Ferrari dealership, basically, or right next door upper management there was really excited about them. And that turned into shooting for the dealership pretty regularly. So I shot at the dealership, you know, maybe four or five times a month. And then was going with them, doing track days with them. That dealership actually ran a series competitive to the Ferrari challenge series, but one year back where they would go to different tracks all over the Southeast and run a gentleman's sort of race series. And so I would go out to some of those and shoot those events with them, and just shooting car events. It was a ton of fun. That's amazing. Yeah, I
0: mean, what an opportunity to really step out of the the car the part of the car world you've been a part of for so long, and really you know jump into exotics and like you said, gentlemen racing is
1: a whole nother thing too. Like that, that's really cool. Yeah, no, it it was a a big jump from the Hondas and Nissans and Toyotas and stuff that we had been doing to jump into these. You know, two hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars cars or more. That sort of just gaslit anything car related for me. As you start, <laughs> as you start going in that, then you want to do more of it. It's a lot of fun. I had already had an interest in that, right? I'd worked in automotive stuff for a number of years, so I said, "All right, let's do this." As you start posting more online, that kind of content, more people start reaching out to you. Um, so through that opened up a door where I could shoot magazine feature for a company. When I was a kid growing up reading car mags, that was always the coolest thing, you know, all these features and car mags to now be at the level of shooting that was just like a dream come true. So I started shooting a couple car magazines here and there, some smaller mags that turned into shooting for a handful of wheel companies. And quickly found myself doing basically nothing but automotive work. Um, it turned into every other day was another magazine or another wheel company or an ad for some sort of company, you know, product shots of what they were doing, just something along that. And mixed in there, I started doing a little bit of commercial work. I think I briefly told you were shooting even brochure photos for tow truck companies. Right. right. So when they have a brochure to look at, just shooting that, right? Huge tow trucks that would lift up some of my trucks or just shooting the ad photos basically for that. A um, lot of fun. Uh, in between doing some of those bigger jobs, I started working pretty closely with a lot of the performance shops here in town. They also have needs for effectively marketing, right? To post up on Facebook, Instagram, to show off their builds. In some cases, I was able to go out and shoot those Cars that they were building for magazines. In other cases, we just shoot some stuff for social media for them, and started working pretty heavily with a lot of those companies. One of them was a company that did a lot of 240 parts and a lot of parts for Formula D kind of cars. Another one was pretty heavy into performance BMW parts. PSI. When I started shooting for PSI specifically, the role changed slightly where I wasn't just supplying photos, but also Working with them to develop sort of a marketing strategy, we would pick out certain things that we wanted to focus on how we wanted to do it, how we wanted to deliver that information, the times, etc. So I started working pretty heavily with them. About that time, I also got an opportunity to shoot for another performance shop who was going to sponsor a drift car in Formula D. They had a Norwegian driver that was coming over, going to get into a previous champion winning car and going to go around and just so to appease the sponsors. For them, they needed content to show the sponsors what's going. That turned into me. So out of the track again, traveling the country, just shooting Formula D stuff. Um, Now that we've gotten into this,
0: the more you go into your photography background and how deep you got into it, I'm really looking forward to seeing how this wraps back into manufacturing because it seems like you were on this trajectory of never leaving photography and just, you know, excelling there and being the guy to turn to. So, so how did this change?
1: At the time, that was the plan. Um, You know, initial goal as I started shooting photo stuff was to shoot for, let's say, Super Street Mag, right? That was one of the big ones when I was growing up. And then all of a sudden it turned into, pretty regularly shooting for them and shooting covers for them. And I was like, okay, well, what's next? What are we doing? Um, Getting into shooting Formula D, I shot with that race team for a season. Um, Then I had, at SEMA, uh, met through some mutual friends, some of the guys at BC Racing uh, out there in Vegas, and then started shooting Formula D for them. So I ended up shooting... More of what I was doing, but shooting two or three seasons of Formula D, just traveling the country with them. After one of those seasons, we came back and around this time, the BMW M4 was about to come out, the F82's performance BMW shop that I was working pretty heavily with. They had decided that they were going to do a huge marketing push on this car. They wanted to become one of the industry experts on it. So the plan was to get a car very early on, Let's build the car and do a huge marketing push. So I worked really closely with the owner of that shop to develop effectively a marketing strategy of how we're going to get this, what we're going to do, what would be best for marketing, how we'll release content, etc. As part of that, one of the guys that I met back at the car meet days and had become a friend, he had transitioned out of working for somebody else he had worked on a couple of drift teams he had worked for a grand dam team and started his own fabrication shop so my friend jt just got out on his own a handful of months earlier was doing fabrication stuff and i convinced the guy at the bmw shop that we need to take the car there to him and have him do this custom cage for the car he's the person we want there's not one off the shelf yet the car just came out you know, two weeks earlier, let's take it to him for the SEMA build that we're going to work on. Um, we built this car working with a bunch of companies working to market all their products. And then the plan was to take this car out to SEMA and then do a huge marketing campaign, driving it back. We shipped an M4 with a cage and seats and carbon and big brakes and wheels, et cetera, et cetera, out to Vegas had it in the SEMA show. After the SEMA show, I was going to go with one of the guys from BC racing at the time, drive it from Vegas to California, shoot all over all the cool spots that everybody, you know, was used to seeing pictures from in California, then drive it back cross country in that we ended up deciding to go sort of the scenic route. So we went from California, then went back up through to Denver, all the way across to Illinois and drove the car back down to Florida just shooting pictures along the way, shooting video along the way. And just, there was pictures in snow, there's pictures, you know, in the desert, there's pictures just everywhere. Let's put this huge marketing push out for this car. Uh, after getting back from that drive, BC racing came to me because I'd worked with them on a handful of stuff for formula D and just asked if I wanted to take a role with them in the marketing department. I had effectively been doing a bunch of marketing, they needed somebody to shoot photos for content creation, they had an on staff video guide, but photos was more of my thing. And it seemed like I'd fit. I had also felt like I'd sort of hit a plateau in photography. It, it gets very difficult to move beyond a certain point if you're not shooting stuff beyond that point. So if you want to shoot at a really high level, you sort of need to put out work at that really, really high level. And I was putting out what I thought at the time was pretty decently high level work, but there was another step up. And it, the jobs I was doing at the time didn't justify spending, you know, a month or more working on them uh, to try to get that level polish out of the work. So what BC sort of offered me in my eyes was not only a steady paycheck rather than the peaks and valleys of being your own boss, but It offered a chance for me to not worry about money and be able to work on some photography stuff there, shooting product shots. I could really push things and just not worry about it. And so initially, I honestly thought of it as like sort of a stepping stone. Uh, Joke's on me, because now that's the longest I've worked anywhere. (laughs) Um, So I took a job at BC doing marketing work I was helping the video guy set up some shots and we were doing some commercials for the product there, shooting product shots. One of the things I didn't think about when I did that is when I started working for them and going out to all the race events, we did Formula D there, we did some road racing stuff, there was some drag stuff. When we go to the events, start getting asked pretty technical questions about the product. Um, not so much that we were the technical face of the company but we were the ones at trackside trying to you know shoot some photos shoot some videos yeah. to post up of what was going on what our drivers were doing and these were from the teams that were asking you the questions or from fans at the events all the above but okay what was really the big driver and what happened next was some of the teams what our setup at the time was was you know there was somebody back in the office who would work with the teams and they develop whatever they were going to do with the kit, they would help them out with the parts. And then we would end up out at the track and just shoot photos of it, videos of it post it online, social media, etc. The more I got asked questions from them, the more I started trying to answer questions, I did have a background in automotive. Uh, So some of the stuff I already knew some of the stuff, you know, I had access to the answers to. And I'd say maybe a year into working at BC. My role there sort of transitioned out of primarily doing photos, not that anybody suggested I do this, it's just what I was spending my time doing, to more of a, I'd say sort of like an applications engineer slash turnkey kind of person in the CNC stuff. So I started specking out what the custom kits would be. I started helping the drivers with setup questions, how to modify them, how to tweak them. I was spending a significant amount of time on the road then There was a road race team that we were working with that I think one year I spent in maybe nine weeks or something, their facility or in in Vegas, working with them between the different road race events. And, uh, we were shooting behind the scenes stuff for a build series on it. So it's just a significant amount of time with these guys. So it made sense for me to kind of handle from a BC standpoint, what we were doing. So up until this
0: point, you had had no manufacturing experience though. It was just cars and building and things like that.
1: No manufacturing experience whatsoever. Everything that I was doing was, you know, the photo stuff or changing parts on cars. Shortly after I started working at BC, um, I had met my now wife and she was sort of long distance. It was an hour and a half, two hours away. So when we got time to spend with each other, we would try to do that. And she went to go run errands one day and asked if I wanted to go. And one of the things on the list was just her getting a haircut, Um, there's not much for me to do there. So I was just perusing YouTube. And I actually came across a video by, I think it's Kyle Engineers on YouTube, who's a now ex-Formula One Mercedes aerodynamicist. And he was talking about the accessibility of CAD. Um, And sort of just, you know, he uses it to draw stuff and go through, this is before his time in Formula One, Uh, He was doing some freelance stuff and finishing up his PhD and watched through that video and then got hooked on a bunch of other videos of CAD and realized there's aspects of this that could help me in what I'm doing at BC. So I went down the rabbit hole of first learning. I had had a little bit of experience playing with SolidWorks back in the day, but was not very proficient with it. And at that point in time, I started playing with Onshape right as it started. Onshape was cool back then. There was so little user base that uh, I had a direct line of communication with some of the developers and was complaining about features that didn't exist. And the next week, they'd be added to my account, and I could use them. It's like, this is really cool. Eventually, I realized that that still was not as baked of a product as what I needed at the time. Fusion was gaining traction, and I started to migrate to that. Uh, I pretty much jumped head first into the CAD stuff at that point in time. At BC, I thought it would be good marketing material and good for me for technical reasons to show off to have full shocks. So I started designing shocks and taking apart shocks there and reversing what those were as a way to learn CAD. Just take apart every single little shim, every single little thing inside the shock and rebuild that giant assembly in CAD. Um, That's crazy.
0: That's a lot of motivation just for motivation's sake, which is pretty rare.
1: Yeah. When I dive into something, I tend to dive pretty deep. Um, I also tend to be fairly lazy, which is funny. I I like to put up a lot of work ahead of time and then don't do any (laughs) maintenance or anything. (laughs) Uh, So, yeah, here's one of those examples where I just dove in Head first. Um, Around this same time, the guy who had built the roll cage, JT, for the M4, buddy of mine, his fabrication shop was expanding and going off. He's doing a lot of hand fabrication work. Um, He had had some experience doing CNC stuff in a machine shop before, but was primarily doing hand fab welded parts of some kind for. A bunch of different cars. Um, Hanging out there, wanting to get more into manufacturing stuff in some way, talking to him about ways he could scale stuff, it it just started to shift where my interests were. Um, At the time after I learned CAD and felt decently proficient with it. From my point of view, it pulled away all barriers to 3d printing. Uh, 3d printing was something that had seemed really cool the printers were extremely expensive at this point in time they dropped down to 3 to 500 bucks for basically a project but a printer um so i got one of those and started hanging out at the fab shop even more started printing parts for little things that he could use over there and then dove head first into 3d printing that so what time period was this? Like how many years ago? Uh, 3d printing stuff would have been 2016. Okay. Um, so with 3d printing, it, it turned into the same thing as the car stuff. Uh, let's research. What can we do? What can we modify? How can we do this? And that snowballed into having half a dozen 3d printers at any given time, building ones from scratch, designing them in CAD, changing out the boards on them and, you know, programming the motion controller in it, et cetera. Um, I got really deep into that, and that was actually my first introduction to G-code. One of the control boards I started using was Duet. They have the Duet Wi-Fi, but it's a 32-bit board that is completely G-code-driven. Everything you do on it is little subroutines effectively now in G-code. So when the printer starts up, it's homing routine, it's this. There's a little G-code subroutine that you write in the firmware and tell it to do that. Um, so I started to become prof- proficient and familiar with very basic g code commands. Looking back now, I realize it was effectively little m codes, little move commands, I put LED lights on it, and it would have it flash to indicate things successfully did things and you could put little dwells in them, etc. Um, so I started playing with the 3d printer. And like I said, I was hanging out at the fab shop a lot. Made sense for us to print little jigs for him to use while he was doing things. And that sort of piqued my interest. I got to play around in that word world a little bit. Um, meanwhile, I have a full time day job at BC, still traveling pretty heavily, still, uh, you know, trackside, trying to offer support, trying to build kits, move forward with that stuff as I. Got more and more interested as to what was going on over the shop. Became pretty, you know, comfortable in the 3D printing space. I had a bunch of 3D printers. I wanted to move more, move into the next thing. I started talking a lot about buying a small mill of some kind and wanted to get into that. My wife tricked me by going through JT and asking him, what's a good one? He posed a question saying, you know, Hey, my friend wants to get one. What do you think is a good option for something like this? So it's effectively me just naming off the ones I thought was good from what I had been researching. (laughs) Um, So come Christmas time uh, later that year, she had got me a a small little benchtop mill. If you've seen any of the really old videos that Grimsmo used to put out, one of the ones like he started with uh, is effectively something very similar to that. But slight, what I had was slightly bigger than what he had. But we're talking about a maybe three, 400 pound machine max that, you know, it's got travels of five inches by maybe 10 inches or something. Not, not very big, Ma- full manual machine. Uh, I had zero intention when I wanted one of these to begin with, to play with it manually. Uh, no point in time in life have I enjoyed manually making things. I think, uh, I think there's a skill that you have to have to do that proficiently. There's some muscle memory. There's a lot of knowledge to move it. Uh, it's just never something I've spent a ton of time with and it, it didn't interest me. So I think I made two small little parts manually on this machine and then instantly ripped it apart and said, we're putting all screws in this thing. We're putting motors on this thing, etc." Um, other than the scale of the parts. It was very familiar because it's just like building a 3D printer, right? A low-end CNC mill, if it doesn't have servos, has stepper motors, just like a 3D printer. It's drivers like that. There was a ball screw instead of a lead screw, but those are very similar. So I swapped everything on that, made it CNC. And Like I said, I think it was probably the third part that got made on that machine was CNC. Very crude, but CNC, we were figuring it out. It's Um, like
0: when people use
1: Edge browser to download another browser. It's like your only (laughs) your your only use is to get me to what
0: I actually want.
1: Yeah, and I had no idea what I was doing at the time on that thing. The I was making small plates. Like there was a couple parts I look back on, and they were I think eighth inch plate and maybe you know one inch by two inch, and they probably took like an hour to make. (laughs) It's this tiny little part. But anyway, you know, got it done and started making little parts on that. Slowly that turned into me replacing 3d printer parts with metal parts and then having some friends ask about, Hey, can you make this little throttle body adapter, or can you make this little coil pack adapters? Okay. And go through and spend hours and hours making these tiny little parts because the machine. Material removal rate on that machine is just atrocious. Uh, I'm sure <laughs> it, uh, <laughs> it, nowadays it would be better, but at the time, uh, you know, my feeds and speeds techniques were poor for the machine and the ways were not properly adjusted, the gibbs in them. So it's got some slop all over the place. So it's just chatter and it was horrible. So at this point, are you still? somewhat working at the fab shop as well so at this point i don't work there at all i don't do anything i'm just playing around at my house and then going and hanging out with him okay Uh, you know getting lunches with him on the weekend etc hanging out but i got deeper and deeper in diffusion trying to learn more and more about cnc stuff back then uh john saunders videos pretty heavily back then. 2016, 2017, etc. Just deep into watching every single video I can. Let's figure this stuff out. Slowly, some of the parts on that little machine started to get a little nicer, started to come a little quicker. Uh, fast forward, maybe 2019, 2020 or so. Uh, JT at the fab shop had been making parts manually, but had a background in CNC and had always wanted a CNC machine himself. He had worked on the dolls years and years ago, um, always wanted one for himself. He had been making a handful of parts here and there for customers on one at a machine shop, a couple doors down, but it was one of those things where he had to sort of wait for the stars to align to be able to get it on a machine. He had to make sure there wasn't something set up nobody was going to be running it, didn't want to tear down a setup, et cetera. So he always wanted one of his own. Um, so we're talking CNC stuff all the time. He's still doing all the fab stuff and decides he's going to buy a Fadal. Uh, he finds one that's really clean. It's an ex air force machine, had a ton of maintenance done to it. Um, I think this is a 2001 Fadal and puts that in the fab shop. I was super excited because it seemed like now I'll get exposure to a big machine at this point in time. I'd never played on a machine that weighed more than, you know, 500 pounds or so (laughs) off, but now here's a machine, you know, at the shop I go to every other week that I could potentially play on. Um, what happened there, which was not planned is I think he made one part or maybe two on it. And then I was just jumping to make a part. Let me make one. What do you got? And so it turned into him sending me a model and he was quite busy with the fab stuff and I said, all right, well, I'll program and try to do this. So the, the first part, I think when I was looking back at what we made on that was larger than the travels of my machine that I had in my house (laughs) and we made, um, motor plates for a Mustang, basically in drag racing, they remove the motor mounts. A lot of times and put a large plate that goes across and holds the motor in. We made these motor plates that had uh, a good bit of surfacing on it. They sort of had a little bend to them and it took forever. I think I spent, you know, a week trying to program these parts I was reading everything I can on fees and speeds, trying to figure out what to do on that. At the time, I don't think I'd ever run a tool bigger than maybe quarter inch on my machine and we were going to jump straight into, you know, a half inch tool and running it faster than I'd ever run my machine uh, So we spent a while trying to figure that out and we ran it and everything went perfect. Realized that a lot of the problems that I had on the small machine sort of go away once you get into sort of a bigger machine. The knife's edge of rigidity versus chatter versus if I'm off on fees and speeds, if it's going to like taking this cut, uh, all that stuff just gets huge and you could be way off and still Take a decent cut and something not have problems. Um, so anyway, we made that part, and a couple weeks later, there's another part. You know, a week later, there's another part, and it turned into I was basically throughout the week programming parts that we would run on Saturdays. He, he had bought that machine for him to run, and it pretty quickly turned into um, programming everything. He's designing it, sent it to me, and he's working on other stuff. Um, he felt comfortable with me running the machine after showing me a couple weeks how to use it, and so, you know, in a lot of cases, he was like, "Here you go. Here's here's the part we're making this week." And at the time, there was zero intention still of me leaving my job or going over there or anything. We're just like, "Nope, we're just making. You're just doing it for fun
0: at that yeah, point. Still,
1: this is fun. This is cool. Uh we we worked through a lot of a, a lot of cool projects over there. We were doing. Parts for some Pikes Peaks cars. We did parts for uh, a salt flat, land speed car. Um, it was all over the place. He, he had had a background in automotive stuff as well. Once other people found out I was doing some stuff over there and I had my connections in automotive, you know, there were some people coming over there and asking us to do stuff because we were just doing things. Uh, eventually, that turned into maybe we should do something with this maybe we should make a business out of this um you know he had been doing fab but i had had conversations with him a bunch about you know how how do you scale the fab stuff now learning cnc it seemed like that was a good way to scale we could buy a couple machines we could scale and slowly um i don't think we even had a long conversation about it it was just like yeah, we're going to do something we're going to do this together. Um, the two of us will, you know, put our heads together and just do some things with machining. At the time we had started to push that Fadal a lot further than I think anyone probably should push one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, we were doing a significant amount of surface work, like surfacing work on it. Very rarely were parts flat, very rarely do they have, you know, a faced surface on it. It was just all surfacing, trying to figure out how to hold it. I'm racking my brain. And so I started researching five axis stuff pretty heavily because it seemed like the path that we needed to go. Um, I had sort of zeroed in at that time. The UMC 500s had come out not that much earlier. That looked like the perfect machine. Funny enough, I was listening to this podcast and you had an episode with Nick, P3D, who I didn't know existed before that podcast, but found out there's somebody else. He's fairly young. He's got a UMC. He's in town. That sounds cool. I want to see one. Let me reach out and let me see if he's willing to have me come over for a few minutes and hang out, see the machine, talk his ear off. Um, I mentioned to JT. He, I don't think we had any t- intentions necessarily of buying a machine right away, but I had a lot of interest in it, and th- that was the path that I thought we would end up going. I mentioned to him that I was going to go check this one out. He wanted to come with me. We both went over and looked at the machine. Uh, I think, as you know, Nick's had some woes with his, but definitely, we we saw that machine. Talked to him about the things he liked, didn't like on it and really that sent us and that solidified that we needed to get one just seeing the machine in person seeing it move around said yep this is what we need you know i don't think most people aspire to get maybe that machine if they're going to get into a five axis we were looking at it at the time was financially this is the most viable option um, when i started looking at other stuff there's less information out there if you don't have access to one to learn about the controller there's pretty significant price jump going into another machine um as i found out later looking it's roughly 2x basically to get into something else Uh, now it seems like there's some other machines i think brothers come out with a machine since then um but at the time you know looking into other companies five axis offerings. It was basically 2x. And we were shooting way above where we what we should be <laughs> to get the UMC 500. Um, so within a couple of weeks of going to Nick's shop and looking at that, we sort of decided like, yeah, we should make a move to get this machine. Let's make a move to try to make some parts. Let's do it. Um. After talking to Nick and talking to a handful of other guys online, we sort of specked out the machine on the stuff that, you know, lessons that they had learned on the machine, things that they wish they did. A lot of guys had chip problems with those machines. They had come out with a new chip conveyor and we said, all right, well, let's get that. It's a pretty significant jump, but some of these other guys were having chip problems where every hour on the hour, they're having to dump chips out of the machine. That sounds like a problem I don't want to deal with. We'll try this new conveyor. So we spec'd out a machine to get into it, uh, and try to make the jump into five axis before that came, it was a mad dash to do all the research we could and try to learn anything we could about five axis. At the time I was feeling pretty proficient in three axis stuff. We were doing what I thought was, you know, some complex three axis surfacing. And as soon as I went down the rabbit hole of five axis, it was pretty quickly humbled. (laughs) There's a lot more variables that all of a sudden come into play. Um, I I realized there was a whole world of stuff that I just knew nothing about.
0: Well, you know what? This might be actually a great time to jump into our first question from Ethan. He says, Oh, master of the UMC, teach us your ways. What kind of prep, preventative maintenance, programming tips, etc., goes into making beautiful intolerance parts on a machine line that seemingly everyone else struggles with?
1: Um. Unfortunately, I think some of that is kind of obvious best practices, and some of that's a bit of luck. I think we uh, we stacked the decks in our in our favor. There's there's some guys who I know that have had some woes with these machines that I think they just got a dud. <laughs> you know, the um, talking to our local uh, tech and salespeople, it seems like those machines have had, I think, up to five revisions now on them. They made some casting revisions. They made some revisions as to how they handle thermal comp. Um, I think Nick was saying, for example, his the other day is just missing a sensor that's in the machines have now. Um, so that, you know, that skews how the machine runs. And I think a lot of people have had these machines in maybe not climate controlled spaces or they did and had kind of an earlier version on it. Ours has honestly been pretty great. Uh, the other thing that we have working for us is mostly messing with automotive, we don't have as quite a tie of to tolerances as a lot of other people are running in. I think if some of these people are trying to build parts that have a handful of true positions or really tight tolerances, whereas most of the parts that we're doing either get welded into something or in a lot of cases we're designing the part and we know what the machine's capable of. Um at this point in time, I'd say probably two thirds of the work that we're doing is designed in-house and then machined by us. Very rarely are we handed, you know, here's a a drawing with some tolerances and I need you to make this and hit this. We kind of know what the machine can do. We know what it does well, what it doesn't do well. Um, So we kind of play to that a bit. But besides that, we haven't really had to fight it too much. Uh, it's, It's just been pretty good what Um, about surface finish and stuff what what kind of
0: tooling do you favor what kind of strategies do you favor because i mean a lot of your parts look like show parts and i I mean i but you've said that's kind of the point you know they're going on show cars and things that need to look that pretty but they're gorgeous parts
1: so what have you learned about making stuff that looks that good i appreciate that um A lot of the parts that we're doing right now, either are going on a car that's going to get a lot of attention like that, or like a show thing of some kind, or is going on race car stuff. We just like parts that look really nice. Um, JT coming from fab background. If you make something and it doesn't look the part, it doesn't work. It's out of tolerance of what you want. Uh, rather than sending it, you just throw it in the trash and start over again. And there's been a handful of times where we've had to, you know, play with some stuff like that on the machine parts, but for the most part, been trying to just stack the deck in our favor. Uh, if a part starts to look like it may get chatter, maybe we'll stop it in the middle and do some semi-finishing passes and, you know, all the ball work we're trying to hit with a nice part of the tool. We're trying to, uh, you know, run it in a a toolpath that the machine we know we'll be happy with. Uh, We're doing a lot of simultaneous work, but especially a machine like this, I don't think is happy doing huge C axis swings or huge B axis swings. If you can keep the movement kind of clean and smooth, and then keep, keep your chip load to something reasonable, don't just floor it. It's not too difficult, I don't think to get a fairly nice finish. Well, so what tool paths
0: are you using to like get that smooth motion and like what kind of chip loads do you stick to?
1: We're using, depends on what it is. I'd say a lot of what people have seen that have, they've been excited about the finish has been some of the intercooler end tanks we've done. We did, um, when we first got the machine, uh, we did a handful of end tanks for a car that sort of made their way around Uh, Instagram because of the car that went on, and because they had some unique features on the inside. And on that, we really wanted was something to go with the flow of what the air would do, uh, going through the intake. So all of those on the outside finish has been some form of a blend toolpath. Originally, we were using just blend exclusively on the outside of it. More recently, Some of those have switched to the new geodesic toolpaths. It's also got a blend style toolpath in there, Um, but it's able to accentuate the curvature of the part. I think I had never used blend or I had never been able
0: to get a good blend toolpath. And then after talking to you and seeing Jeremy's presentation at the DSI thing, I've given it a shot now and there's been like three or four parts since I've got back that blend Gave me the perfect toolpath. Like, I'll try to do something with steep and shallow, and it'll look like shit. And then I'll be like, oh, I'll try blend. And I'll be like, oh, that's exactly what I wanted. Like, if I could envision a perfect toolpath, that's what it would be. I was really surprised.
1: Yeah. Blend has been for a number of years now, one of our go to toolpaths. I think besides surface finish itself, and when I say surface finish, like the, you know, how shiny or, uh, uniform that finishes. If the finish itself or the toolpath goes along the part in a way that accentuates the curves, it just makes everything look better. Um, if we were to make some of the same parts using, let's say a scallop toolpath that just walks around and goes everywhere, it's sort of an easy button just to click that and go over. But it's going to hit all those curves in a way that don't accentuate what the shape of the part is. And I don't think the final part looks like it has as nice of a finish, because you start to see a lot of irregularities and uh, variances in what the cusp is in different areas in a way that's not uniform. And I think that uniformity shows through as, you know, an elegant or nice surface finish.
0: So what's your go-to finish ball mill, and what kind of chip load are you keeping?
1: Right now, uh, tooling in general, we're using... GW Schultz for roughers and aluminum, and then almost everything else is Harvey Helical. Uh, I started using those early on because they, in my opinion, had a, a very large offering, but also had some of the best data that was easily accessible. So we're making the transition into using bigger machines and using more tools and tools of Different sizes, different stickouts, lengths, extended. I had no idea early on, even a ballpark of where to start. And Helical's Machining Advisor Pro has a nice little setup. You click on the tool and say, "Here you go," and you can put in what material you use and what taper the machine is, and to give you a rough ballpark as what what to do. More recently, we've been researching a handful of other companies to see if we can get those finishes nicer, and we've transitioned. Away from three flute stuff, which is kind of the standard in the machine to two flute, but we're still using helical two flute stuff. Generally speaking, chip loads are no more than maybe two and a half, three thou chip per tooth, but in a lot of times it'll be a bit slower than that. Um, is this like a half inch tool? You're yeah, like a, like a half inch or three eighths ball. Okay,
0: so you got this UMC, you're starting to make parts. Where has the business gone since then?
1: Yes, so since we got this UMC, um, things have gotten extremely busy. You realize that this is definitely a viable thing. Uh, it went from every Saturday trying to do stuff to that's definitely not enough time. So I would program parts during the week and in some cases set them up and run them on Saturday and then leave them for JT to run in between doing fab stuff during the week. In other cases, we needed some stuff rather quickly. So I would program it remotely, send him the files he'd set up and running it. Um, but yeah, besides doing the one-off parts in attempting to make this more of a viable business, we started taking on more and more job shop work. So there's a handful of companies in the automotive space that we've started doing manufacturing for, just making their parts for them. Some of those we're still designing. Some of those they are sending over a drawing of some kind or a solid model. And we're running decent sized production runs with that. Um, In addition to that, we started taking on some work from an old friend who got pretty deep into motorcycle work. Uh, He's from the car industry, but now has kind of fully transitioned over into small bore motorcycles. 110s, 125s, uh, like stuff like the Grom. There's little series where guys will soup these things up and race them. And he has built a fairly large company tuning and offering parts for those. And so we started manufacturing some of the parts for them. So in addition to doing some of these production run parts, we keep getting some random larger projects either coming our way or sort of threatening to come our way. Uh, We had, last year, a a local Porsche shop bring us a Cayman. Uh, The idea was to turn this car into a Pikes Peak car. They wanted to take Cayman GT4 Club Sport, which is the factory built race car version of the Cayman, and put 991.2 Turbo S motor in it, which nobody had done before, I guess, in that chassis. Um, but they wanted to use all the Porsche parts. They wanted to use the factory turbos. They wanted to use everything. Um, because that motor doesn't come in that car, there was a lot of work that had to be done to make that fit. We ended up making
0: that motor is the, the stock motor is already shoehorned in there (laughs) with like almost no
1: room. So yeah, that's crazy. So we ended up, uh, getting the car from them and the bare motor without you know accessories turbo stuff was just sitting in the engine bay and we we were tasked basically with figuring out how to make all this stuff for how to make it fit um what had to happen in in the end is the turbos had to go into you know a slightly different place from where they would go normally in the turbo s Uh, this meant that all the hard lines that run for water and oil to the turbos none of that would work. Those are all proprietary fittings on the end of hard lines. So we went down the path of making dozens of little fittings, converting everything to an. the air to water intercooler wasn't going to fit. So we made pretty nice air to water intercooler that's got two air inlets and comes out with one outlet to go into the throttle body, made that some exhaust flanges, etc. But while doing a project like that, it was just further pushing that as we take up the machine time, making, you know, a family of parts, designing these parts, proofing out all these parts, you know, that's just time away from doing any other production parts on the machine. You also still have a job at this point. Yeah. A full-time job. (laughs) Yeah. So around that time is when we started talking about that needs to change or I need to dwindle out. I had a conversation with BC uh, and told them that I was going to look to make this a full time gig. Um, asked them if they would be alright with me stepping down, you know, to part time and maybe weaning my way off. And for them, no issues whatsoever, full support, whatever you need, let's go. So I started to work with them to Develop an exit strategy. Basically, we started to chat about how that would work with the roles that I was doing there, who was going to take over it, how I may stay on, you know, afterwards as a contractor for a period of time, uh, but started dwindling down. Moving up to more recently, I've dwindled down from there, little by little, kind of taking baby steps, kind of nervous to take the jump. Uh, where I'm now down to three days over there and three days at the shop. Uh, JT's over there full-time, you know, doing the fab stuff still and running the machines when I'm not there. If we've got production stuff to go, he's sort of wearing both hats, kind of jumping back and forth. But the long-term goal is to slowly now move away from the fab stuff. It doesn't scale as easy. You know, obviously, it's a lot of work to do one part, and then if you want to do the next one, it's a, it's a lot of work to do the next two, the next three. It's like a
0: manual machinist. Like, it's it's, the
1: same amount of hand turning, you know, for every single part. And (laughs) he wants to get into designing parts more and more complex, uh, parts, cooler parts. I think that's piqued his interest moving more into just doing that. He's take, he's extremely proficient with designing parts he's taken on some huge projects he built a drag car from the ground up right as I was coming over and starting to do stuff at the shop and then I started helping machine a handful of little parts on that but you know from the ground up tube chassis four-cylinder drag car that made a little over 2,000 horsepower but the goal was to make a little over 3,000 horsepower sort of a high-end drag racing build but it's just a a long grind of a project and every single part is another part and when we look at this this looks like something that we could scale real nice do you think you'll keep
0: larger profile projects though you know take on one here and there is kind of like good marketing or is it you know really trying to hard cut away from that kind of stuff and move towards production machining
1: yeah i I think that's what makes the most sense from a marketing standpoint. Having spent so much time in marketing before this, um, I've seen what works and what doesn't work in that. I've also spent a bit of time now hanging out, you know, on on the forums and chatting to other machine shops and seeing what they do. I think our goal right now is to scale the job shop work and slowly start to introduce our own product line of parts that would give us the opportunity to kind of do whatever we want, designing them and have a diverse income stream. At the same time, from a marketing standpoint, I think those bigger builds, there's a ton of marketing, you know, hype that comes from them. If all you do is do some job shop work day in, day out, it's it's kind of hard to get that to go, let's say viral on Instagram or something, right? If you build this elaborate card builds, or you make all these um, parts for some other big build of some kind, those kind of move all around. And, And while those don't necessarily pay the bills, always, sometimes they, they snowball into a huge time suck. I think mixing those into everything else we do is probably the move to try to grow this to be as big as we can. Well, and speaking about
0: growth, you just took delivery of your second five axis. So talk to me about, you know, deciding to buy that one specifically and options that you chose and all that.
1: Sure. So, yeah, we just got UMC 1000 SS to accompany the 500 SS that we have. That machine just got powered up last week. We honestly weren't sure what we were going to get. And then sort of fell back into that um I was pretty gun-ho on the 500 from day 1 everything I had seen about five axis stuff which has definitely proven to be true is the smallest machine you can get a hold of and do the work on the better uh if you're going to make a small part make it on a huge machine machine is just terrible there's no clearance there's no access tool lengths have to get huge you might crash it etc so we had the 500 um unfortunately, shortly after we got it, we started getting requests for bigger and bigger parts, more and more complex parts, and stuff that uh, in some cases was quite tricky to fit on the 500. In other cases was just, Nope, this isn't happening, we'll have to turn it down for now. Um, we started looking at a 750. And I started looking at the size jump from the 500 to the 750. And it's really not that big of a jump. Um there's, I think, a four inch difference in Y, which is sort of a limiting factor on those machines. And four inches, those sounds like a lot. When you start to look at car parts, and you look at, let's say, a valve cover or an oil pan or this or that, they, they still just don't fit, they need to be pretty significantly larger than that. Um, Go into a bigger machine had some concerns about maybe sticking with the Haas, we've had a couple little software glitches on our machine that Haas has been pretty good about trying to get to the bottom of, and we haven't had any tolerance issues, like I said, on the 500, but when you go to a bigger machine, if it's got the same repeatability, but you're much further out from center, started to get a little nervous that this may not be, you know, what we want, what we need. So I started going down the rabbit hole of researching every other machine that was out there and you know, there's a laundry list of stuff you start looking at. Let's say a Grove, and you say like this looks amazing, and then you start getting prices back, and you're like, "Well, this is a million dollar machine." Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. This is, That's this isn't gonna five or happen. six UMC five hundreds. Okay, yeah. never mind. <laughs> um, and so I, I think we ended up kind of where everybody ends up with looking at Hermley pretty close. Those make a lot of sense on paper. I think we'll still want to get over there, but right now. The short term goal is to bring on a second machine to help ease the workload with what our current one has. Really another 500 would be great, but the problem with another 500 is it doesn't really give us any new capability, it just increases current capacity. Um so we started looking at C400s and talked ourselves into that being the move. That's definitely what we want to do. And then we start like do in the books on what does it take for me to make the jump full time over here, uh, money wise? What's a machine payment look like on a C400? And when you start adding those all of a sudden as one swift move, it's a huge amount of money. Totally. Um, yeah. So <clears throat> we talked ourselves back into Haas. What's nice about getting into a UMC 1000 is there'd be no downtime. We got nervous if we got into a Harmley that I didn't know how much time post processor work was going to take to get that sorted and cleaned, what it would take to figure out, you know, some of the probing stuff in it, how to use the controller. Uh, And if we got into a Haas again, basically, the day it showed up, it could start making chips, there's there's nothing we would have to worry about. Um, We had talked to our Haas dealer about seeing what kind of deal they could offer us We went back and forth for a couple weeks. And then they called us up with pretty attractive offer on a machine. And so we just took a jump on it and get it. Uh, congrats. We, we ended up getting a 1000 SS. We got the same chip conveyor we got on the other one. It's a chip disc conveyor. Um, some of the other guys have had problems, like I said, with their chips clogging up and every hour on the hour having to empty the machine. Otherwise the shop ends up flooded. We've cleaned out that same chip tray, I think twice in a year. Uh, so that was a must, getting that thing. We also have been making these intake manifolds for a motorcycle client, where I think they use 29 of the 30 tools in our 500. Um, so this one, we opted for a 50 tool, uh, because tearing down the machine to change out all the tools and then switch back and forth. It's just been a bear. <laughs> so I if, bet, Yeah there's a lot of tools on one of those jobs that are really close. We have a handful of three 16 and eighths tools that get, you know, 15 20,000 from hitting the stick out. And so that's not the stick out that we would normally run on those tools, they got to be pulled out a little bit. So pulling them out, putting them back in knowing that they may hit if we forget or don't pull them out, right? Uh, getting the bigger tool change is going to make life a breeze, I think. Um,
0: uh, are there any other options that you chose on this one that you wish you had bought on the 500?
1: I don't think we got anything else too crazy that we didn't get on the 500. We did opt the 500 for through spindle and through air, which we've used both. Of. The only thing we did definitely did not get this time is there's a uh, a skimmer that Haas offers that's basically a rubber band that spins around and goes down in there and it doesn't seem to do much of anything. <laughs> so we, we did not get that this time. Um, but no, yeah, we, 50 tool and the tool changer were the big things on the list. Um, the idea with this machine though, is not necessarily to be a long-term for machine for us. It's, it's a machine that we have some familiarity with. Know we can get up and running, like I said, very quickly, but we still have those, you know, big eyes looking over towards the Hermley and want to get into that. So I think. The goal is to prove out this year, I'll take the the final leap and, you know, take off those last couple of days and go full time over there. We'll prove out that we've got the work to support two five access machines and machine payments, you know, for those, and then look to start swapping both the machines out, I think for a, a 250 and a 400. Nice. I mean,
0: yeah, if anything, people like you and Nick prove that, you know, yeah, you might have problems, but you can still make money. I mean, Nick sold some machines and bought a Kern. So like, clearly, the UFCs make money. And you know, one way or the other, I think you'll have no problem getting there.
1: Yeah, Nick's funny. I chat with him sporadically about stuff, but he he's definitely made enough parts on there to, you know, afford his uh, datron he got and then he got into the Kern. Um, you know we jumped into the machine and uh, we're maybe a year or so later we're like okay let's get it let's get another one let's go we've had a couple little things where it's had some hiccups here and there um but it, it's definitely made money overall it, it's ours has held tolerance pretty well ours is right next to a ac unit so it, it keeps temperature pretty nice <laughs> um so we haven't had any variants with it. But yeah, I, I think they're, they're not the the dream machine, but it's, it's it's an amazing first machine. And if you don't have extremely tight tolerance parts, maybe all the machine that anybody needs, there's so much information out there to run those machines and to run them well. When we're looking at the Hermione stuff right off the bat, I know I'm going to want some post processor edits on this. You know, things like how that thing does a tool change and possibly wanting to hit itself. Because the A axis and that kind of blocks where the tool carousel is. The Haas is set up in a pretty user friendly orientation where you can always see clearances. Um, I see a couple other mutual friends we have uh, just got a Hermley Garrett from Power Stroke Magic. And I see the machine turn, you know, a 90 or negative 90, whatever it is. And you're just blind to seeing anything yeah. on those <laughs> machines. It's, it's terrifying. I, I don't know how you cycle through those. Cause I don't think they have a side window at all. You're just, I hope this works. Yeah. Um, the Haas is B axis. You have full visibility. Post processors work at the gate. Everything's, you know, it, it's a fairly easy jump. And if it's not really tight tolerances, I think it's a, a perfect machine. I think a lot of times, like I said, people who've had problems with it have had an older version of it or have had sort of an early dud kind of thing or maybe just didn't stack the the cards in their favor on it. They were optimistic it would do more than it can and sometimes in situations that are less than favorable. Um, so is your thousand making parts already? Unfortunately, not yet. So the we had a hurricane threatened to come through here. And we didn't get very much more than you know, 20 mile an hour winds or something come through here. But that delayed the final leveling and installation of the machine. And so it wasn't until last weekend that the machine got powered up and was ready to go. Um, I got about a day to work on the 500 because we had to move the whole shop around to fit this new machine. Um, So I got the 500 back up and running and got parts in it. But currently we're waiting on the last of our tool holders to show up and as soon as those show up hopefully start making parts um tomorrow i'm gonna head over to the shop and try to shrink up a bunch of our tools that have showed up and see if we can make first chips on it
0: awesome that's exciting did you go lang again for this
1: yeah so we we went lang on the first machine i'd heard a handful of complaints i think at the time with fifth axis there was some talk of pull studs break in and you know they have aluminum plates as kind of the norm when i talked to one of the uh, vendors for them he said hey you don't really need a steel plate and i wasn't sure about repeatability pulling stuff on and off and smashing it down we do pretty high mix um you know lang seemed seemed to value that and seemed to have a better reputation so we had gone with that on the first machine. So the new one, same thing. We ordered a, a Lang zero-point base plate and then a handful of risers to go with the vices we've already got. Um, so I'm I'm looking forward to using the 1000 not only as a big five-axis machine, but potentially as a, a three-axis machine where we can slap a couple of vices on it and run down and probe it currently in the shop, we've got the two hosses and still have that old Fadal in the shop, but with no tool setter, no probe, no nothing. Like, uh, I basically want nothing to do with the machine anymore. Right. Yeah. I'm sure it's
0: the bastard child for sure of the, the shop now.
1: Yeah. On occasion, we're like, okay, well, we'll just, we'll run this job on that because everybody else is booked. But, you know, setting up a job on it is a bear. Um, the new machine having a larger lane plate, being able to throw down multiple vices and instantly just hit go is going to be huge. Totally.
0: Uh, let's see, we got some other questions. One eight manufacturing. Kevin asked what was the, f- your favorite part of the DSI summit other than the networking aspect, and then he also chastised us for neither of us coming down to stop by.
1: I also talked to CAD Chris about coming down to LA during that same trip and it just didn't happen. In the end, (laughs) there was a a last minute flight straight to where that DSI event was. So I didn't fly through LA. But it would have been awesome to go, you know, see both those guys. Um, DSI event was really cool. I don't know about for you. But for me, finally getting to meet everybody face to face that I'd chatted with online, uh, was one of the biggest things there. I haven't had a chance to go to IMTS yet, which is where a lot of that stuff happens. Oh, man. Yeah, that, that's a ton of fun. So yeah. I'm glad
0: you got to go to the event then.
1: Yeah, back doing all the car stuff previously. I mean, that's what SEMA was. So I've got an idea of what that normally would be like. But for me, machining stuff was a side thing or, a you know, it's a hobby thing. And then, you know, I said, I'm gonna go and it's two years or something, there's another one. And then we hit COVID. And then we hit and Now we're slammed busy at the shop and I don't have time to leave for that. So up to this point, I haven't had to go. And that that was the first, you know, out of town event to meet people. And that was huge. Uh, So
0: outside of networking though, he was asking us what, or you, what it was your favorite
1: thing at the DSI summit. I think on the third day we broke out into small groups and had some deep dive classes, um. I went and I elected to go into one with Devin Dupuy, 1186 manufacturing, and Craig Chester from Autodesk, who sort of did a deep dive, uh, discussing different tool paths and discuss discussing a handful of workflows. And one of the things that Devin showed in that just so happened to be something that's been, uh, in my browser search history, just constantly recently, and that's trying to handle dynamic or different work holding options for the same part. So now that we've got the second machine, there's going to be times where I want to program one for one part and move that part last minute to the other one, or we previously ran it on one machine. And now I'd like to, if possible, run on this one. Um, because of the platter difference between the two machines, one of them's a 16-inch platter and the other one's a 25-inch platter. Clearances you know, are not the same. You may not be able to get to the same angle. You may not be able to reach. And so I've been heavily trying to research different ways that you can program a part and quickly switch it to run on another machine um, and, and everything that's related to that. One of the things that Devin ended up showing off there was an interesting trick where you can build out a ton of work holding all in one file, drop your part in like the container method, and the work holding can be swapped out to a different one, either between one vice and another vice with a riser, you know, maybe two risers and two vices. And because of how he built out the fusion model, it's all there, all the files. Very similar to how, uh, you know, sort of configurations are in SolidWorks, and you can configure things. He's he's figured out a trick sort of to do that, and so at the perfect time, this is what I'm searching for. This is what I'm going through. Devin gives a presentation on that, and he's got a model that he's willing to pass out, and then because we get so deep into all these weird undercuts and multi-axis stuff having craig from autodesk spend some time just explaining some of the toolpaths some different features of them ways that you can utilize strengths or differences between them um extremely helpful
0: yeah i remember you telling me at the dinner after that night he was talking about using was it like Swarf or something, but in a three axis mode, just for like floors that rise or yeah. something like that?
1: Yeah, he, he definitely went over that. And we've actually used that a bit. Um, but yeah, they went over using Swarf in three axis mode to get a toolpath that you can't normally get out of like a 2D contour because it's got a, a variable Z to it or it's got a variable floor and you want it to do effectively what a 2D contour would do, but track a floor um, so th- they were demoing that another interesting one that they went into was the differences between the scallop toolpath and now and Shallow's got scallop in it and at face value. And in a lot of situations, they spit out sort of a normal or similar toolpath to each other, but there's some very big differences behind the scenes as to what they use to drive those two toolpaths and their situations where they'll give you drastically different results. Um, yeah.
0: Well, I was telling you while, while I was there, I was running a customer part that I ended up buying the extension for because I was told, oh, yeah, steep and shallow, like basically lays a NURB surface over your model and then calculates off of that. And I was having like continual cam kernel errors trying <laughs> like any of the standard tool paths. And then I threw steep and shallow at it and I was like, oh, yeah, no problem. Here you go.
1: Here's a tool path. I was like, oh,
0: okay, cool. This is worth it.
1: Yeah. Rather than, most of the toolpaths, I guess, offset off underlying mesh model that it creates, and super shallow goes off that nerve boundary. And so, there are certain situations where it creates just a super clean toolpath where regular scallop kind of falls apart a bit. Um, but yeah, diving into some of those details, um, you don't always get quite that deep in online discussions or YouTube videos about it. It gets kind of dense for some people, so having some face-to-face time with the experts that know that stuff or, you know, sitting in a class where they go over it is invaluable.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. Like a a lot of the learning documentation is geared towards like the 80 percentile where they're like, oh, we want most people to be able to use this. And like a lot of the classes and a lot of the conversations I had were like, you know, that top 10% of like weird stuff that you come across where you're like, I'm never going to see this. you know, a Saunders video or something because sure. it's like so esoteric and out there <laughs> that like, you know, it wouldn't apply more to like than five or 10 people. But those were the five or 10 people who were there maybe. Uh, you know? yeah, so
1: I, it was awesome. I completely agree. I am. Um, yeah, I feel like at this point in time, I've exhausted all the YouTube options I can for, uh, you know, anything that's recent, but also going back and trying to watch old Autodesk, let's say AU, presentations from seven, eight years ago that were for uh, HSM works or for early fusion, and maybe don't apply now, but the basic principle or premise of how they got to that applies. Um, After going through all those, uh, you know, it's become more and more difficult, the more proficient we slowly get at machining and fusion specifically to find Information out there on how to get better. It just gets deeper and deeper. Um, at this point in time, I end up finding myself trying to reach out and help or interject myself into other people's projects. Because what ends, what ends up happening is I find that when other people get stuck on things, if I can work on that project with them, uh, I end up getting exposed to these weird, niche issues that only come up if you do this or that. And so for me, I spent more recently, a ton of time trying to help friends online with whatever stuff they're working on, almost selfishly, just for me to learn more, <laughs> you know? <laughs> no, and I totally agree. I help a ton of people
0: out with fusion stuff because of like, for very similar reasons where it's like, okay. It's like that old adage of like, if you teach somebody something, you learn it better than you could or like than than you did before because you're now like rehab rehashing all of that and having to like lay it out you know lay out 10 years of learning but like in a sequence so that they can understand it and they're like oh yeah those things do go together and and these are the steps that I follow and like having that methodology kind of laid out clearly is is really important and can really help yourself like you said
1: Uh, yeah I I agree completely there's friend of mine in Vegas that kind of followed in what I was doing, going down the path of three printers and then going into machines stuff. And he bought himself a Doosan, uh three axis mill. And we would talk regularly on the phone just trying to, you know, get him up to speed on machining stuff and explain what's going on. And I kept finding myself as I'm explaining it, having moments me working through the explanation would help me understand it better than I ever did before, because I'd realize in the process of explaining, oh, okay, that's what, that's what's going on here. That's what makes sense. Um, So for me, yeah, I've, I've moved pretty heavily into just trying to help or you know, interject myself into everybody else's issues that they're having. So that way I can try to continue learning on my own. Totally.
0: Well, that brings me on to shop news and new things besides the UMC 1000. Anything else new and exciting in your world? Um,
1: the, with the 1000, it brought sort of a sense of urgency to really push to go full time. Um, obviously our monthly expenses at the shop have increased pretty dramatically. Um, so we've finally put through all the paperwork to establish the new company. We were sort of flying under the radar for a long time under the fab company. We've established a new company. And so, uh, establishing that's gonna allow me to sort of officially move over and us to start doing all this. Um, in addition to that with the new machine, like I said, I've been researching not only ways to transition parts between the two machines but also what work holding options we're going to need on this new machine uh we bought the lang base plate and we've got a handful of lang vices and orange vice stuff but looking at much bigger parts um we're looking at doing a handful of oil pans for example right now and those i think are going to end up being 20 something inches by 11 inches by and so holding that on like you know a single lang vice or it's just not going to be enough and the width of those parts is bigger than what I'd like to hold a lot of this stuff on don't really want to do an op 0 and cut some stuff into production parts so right now just doing everything i can to research every option possible for work holding on how we're going to hold these bigger parts on the new machine so you're thinking like the Lang stamping unit and a couple of vices, or? I don't know if we'll go down the path of the stamping in it. I keep meaning to reach out to some of the guys that have that. It seems, it seems interesting. Um, but we've outside of some times where I've put a setup in there that I knew from the start, I probably shouldn't run it in aluminum. We've never had a problem, not pre-stamping anything and just running it. We've got one of those small laying vices that's only maybe i don't remember what it is maybe an inch and a half two inches wide on the jaws and i put material in it which was full width of what the jaw was it was also six and a half seven inches tall which is which is (laughs) ambitious you know height to width kind of wise and that wasn't happy when to slow stuff down um but short of that We've never had a problem sticking, you know, five, six inch tall, huge chunks and just welding on them with three quarter inch end mills without pre-stamping it. Where the stamping unit does look interesting to me is to avoid probing. Right now, if we're sticking parts down in the middle of the vise, you know, we're wasting some cycle time to go down at the beginning of the part and probe it to verify that it is at center. And the stamping units have those options to stamp in sort of a little hash mark to mark where the center would be. Um, and honestly, that's more interesting than pre stamping the the material at this point, just because we haven't seen a need to do that. The, the jaws seem to bite well enough.
0: That's fair. So what else are you researching? What are you looking into?
1: Different size vices or options that aren't on the market currently for our current vices, I reached out to Orange Vice and asked them, um, the size vices we have, they offer some Op1 jaws, but they don't go very wide. Like the Lang vices, for example, are reversible. Orange offers in their 5-axis vices a set of jaws, but they're not reversible. Um, so I was reaching out to them and saying, you know, is there any reason you don't offer this? Do you have any plans to offer this? Going down the path of you know does it make sense for us to do that or when we get into much bigger parts we do have an adapter for large cart. and as much as i don't want to go to something like that if we start talking about you know 11 12 inch wide parts that might be what makes sense the 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 current looks ridiculous on the 500 because it's about the same <laughs> size as the table on the 1000 i don't think it'll look as ridiculous But if you start talking about parts that big, it's more of an on-center setup than when you run like a two or three inch part, it's, it's heavily off-center. And so it might be a viable option for us to use two big vices like that to then span across and hold some bigger parts. But right now going through and just looking at what everybody's options are, downloading all the models building out fusion assemblies and seeing what it looks like, seeing what spacing is, et cetera. Cool. Well, that
0: brings me to the last two questions I ask every guest every week. First of which is, what did you research this week? So besides vices, what else has been popping up in your browser?
1: Going back to the surfacing stuff that we're doing a lot of, one of the things that we've been looking heavily is, which I briefly mentioned earlier, is different tools for surface finish. Uh, there's a handful of guys that I follow online that just get unbelievable surface finishes. Um, I'm pretty happy with what we've got right now, but any way that we can make that nicer is is always going to be the goal. So I've been doing a decent amount of research and trying to see who's got what offerings, trying to figure out what's different between those, um, you know, Frasier's got a bunch of hype around it, for example, as being really nice. Um, that's what I was
0: going to recommend. Their but, Sphero X line is amazing. Like, I've got a few 6 millimeter ones from them that are still chugging and produce amazing finishes.
1: And, and that's what I keep hearing. What I keep doing is going down the line and trying to do as much research as I can as to... What... What a what differences could there be in that tool that makes it nicer um a, a lot of times i'm hard headed and even if somebody will give you know here's a suggestion i'll want to work out in my head as to how that could be better or what makes it better and not just like no this one's the best um it seems like they hold a decently tight tolerance on what that radius is and that makes sense to me that if you You know hold a a nice tolerance on the end of it that as one flute goes around the next one does the same you'd eat up a pretty uniform surface there i know there's some differences on the edge grind and how they do that and how it forms the chip um but yeah i spent a good amount of time looking at flute counts what makes sense both for finish and productivity um the grind on the edge of it who's got what options out there uh we initially tooled up the machine with three flute because pretty much everything was three fruit for aluminum. Right. Yeah. And they were also full flute length tools. And I quickly found that, especially in five axis, I'm not using the top part of the flute very often. We're tipping the tool over and, you know, it may be presented to the workpiece at 45 degree angle or something like that, uh, to not be touching the bottom of the tool, but it's also not touching anywhere near the top. So we transitioned on what we have now to reduce shank with short little flutes to try to get some more rigidity out of the tool itself. Um, and we've seen a little bit of an increase with that, but just want to keep pushing and figure out what we can do to better that that the phrases the stuff seems like the answer that I don't want to concede and say we should go to. <laughs> uh, but I think a big hold up there is just that the the prices Significantly more than what we're paying now. Everyone, sure. everyone keeps saying it's worth it, but at some point we'll have to bite the bullet and you know pay that and just get a couple of them and put them. To yeah, the I was paces. gonna say, give it a shot.
0: If it, you don't like it, you can turn around and tell everyone they're wrong.
1: <laughs> <laughs> What's annoying is I know that that won't happen. I'll get it. <laughs> I'll get it and want to order, you know, carbide to retool the whole machine after we just stocked it up. Yeah. So far, we've been really impressed with it. But yeah,
0: look forward to seeing what you figure out, you know, just trying it out because you already get such amazing finishes that if it does make it that much better, it'll be incredibly impressive.
1: Yeah. I'm also curious to look at, we had talked at the DSI event about you were using a 38 rougher, I think that had a pretty long glute length to it and getting some really nice material movement rates out of a 38 pretty big cut. So I think all around we may, start looking at some other options, but they're on my radar, if not top of the list, for sure.
0: Cool. Well, the other question I ask every guest is what are the things you're working on to be a better person, leader, employee, what have you? None of us are perfect. We're all working on stuff. What are you working on?
1: Yeah. Uh, funny enough, some of the answer to that comes from this podcast as a whole unrelated to that been trying to get ahead of problems at the shop before they arise um you know well there's things that i know are going to come up in the pipeline and trying to research or figure them out or find a good solution so it doesn't become a headache for jt my business partner over there uh just ahead of time and just trying to nip things off but in addition to that i think you and chris talked about the idea of uh, having conversations up front about expectations between somebody else and what do you want and not allowing that to stew and grow on a bit longer. Um, you know, if you talk about it up front, then everyone's on the same page and it doesn't turn into something. And I hadn't given something like that very much thought. So after your conversation there, we started having very similar conversations like, okay, now that we're formalizing this, you know, Similar examples to what you guys talked about. What time of day is is everyone expected to show up at work? How long are we doing this for? How long are, just so that way there's no animosity there? Um JT's extremely competitive over there. So I know that if if we say we're gonna come in at nine, he's gonna come in at eight forty-five, eight thirty, eight and, and uh, <laughs> I don't want to have a race to the bottom, and I also don't want the other person to like get frustrated or upset, so
0: right, yeah, it's it, it all of a sudden becomes, well, I
1: slept here last night where Where were you? <laughs> yeah, well, I was at home programming it till this time, or that so I think to try to make things run smoothly there, you know, and avoid any conflicts uh, we've been trying to just go through and set expectations, make sure everybody's on the same page. And like I said, then outside of that, we're so, we're growing so fast right now that it's hard sometimes to keep up with what's going on. And so anytime I get a chance to get ahead a little bit, I'm just trying to do that to reduce the stress on his end.
0: Awesome. Well, I'm really happy to hear that the conversation was useful Um, (laughs) because yeah, One of those things that can really sink a partnership, I think pretty quickly is like when you start making up this story about the other person without talking to them. So I'm really happy to hear that that was helpful.
1: No, it definitely has. Uh, This podcast as a whole has been super helpful, Uh, you know, four or five years deep into machining stuff now, but we've got, I, I think you just had your 200th episode, so you're four years deep into this podcast, I know Saunders and Grimsmo are uh, maybe 300 or something episodes deep. And listening to these and learning from them has been invaluable. You know, just basically learning off the backs of what everyone else is doing or their struggles or how they've overcome, you know, hard times, et cetera, has been huge. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that.
0: And thank you so much for coming on the podcast and your time. It's been, it was like... It was really cool to hear your backstory at the DSI event and now getting to dive even more into it. I'm super glad that you ended up in machining, but I'm also shocked with how much success you had in photography. So (laughs) that's super awesome. And again, thank you so much for your time. Awesome, thank you, it's been awesome. And thank you to all the Patreon members who let me send people like Garrett a headphone and mic so you guys get good audio. New Patreon member Andres, thank you so much. And thank you all for listening. I will be back next week.